Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another edition of the About to Review podcast, here to amplify diverse voices in media. I'm your host, as always, that guy named John. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. It is listed everywhere, including Google Podcast, Blueberry, Stitcher, all of those. Plus, you can stream the episodes directly from the website abouttoreview.com, which is where you can find full links to the show notes and guests. If you want to follow the program on social media, you can do that as well at About to Review, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and YouTube at youtube.com slash about to review. And lastly, if you want to support the show, that would be fantastic. There are links in the description to the Amazon wishlist if you want to help out the studio, and also a direct PayPal link. If you want to give a couple dollars directly, that would be great. So it is yet another week of a solo episode, and this one is going to be a little bit different. So when I release this first, it is just going to have the review for Dr. Sleep on it, because as of recording, I cannot talk about the Seattle 48-hour horror film project, because the winners have not been announced yet, and I would hate to take away from the hardworking filmmakers who are going to find out what awards they won on Wednesday night, which is when this normally comes out. So first, it is just going to be a review for Dr. Sleep, and then I will come back and add some more stuff about the Seattle 48-hour horror film project, including my favorites and kind of a rundown of the winners and what I thought of those. But before we can do any of that, we have to go to the original song created by Damian Randall of Ill-Mannered Media. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Dr. Sleep will be entering theaters momentarily in just a couple days. This is the sequel to The Shining, which originally came out in 1980. Both books were written by the legend Stephen King. So this is a sequel 39 years after the original. That does not happen too often, especially for something... Like this, Stephen King notoriously has had multiple issues with his film, with the film versions of his stories, including The Shining. He has talked about it multiple times where he hated the ending of The Shining. He had a lot of problems with that film. So now we get Dr. Sleep, directed by Mike Flanagan, who did The House on Haunted Hill, along with uh, Ouija, uh, Ouija, I forget, I think the sequel to that one, something like that, an Oculus. So basically, Mike Flanagan is a horror director to a T. Stephen King kind of had a hand in this one as well. I believe he gets a screenplay credit, obviously, since it is based off of his book from 2013, also called Dr. Sleep. So to see Stephen King being a little bit more involved is a good thing. 
especially when you're dealing with somebody as opinionated, we could say, as Stephen King. So in Dr. Sleep, we pick up uh, Danny, or now known as Dan, Torrance, who was a little boy in The Shining who was terrorized by his father, Jack, and both he and his mother are terrorized in the Overlook Hotel in the original Shining. We see him now in his, I would say, early 40s, and he is bouncing from town to town, job to job, because his alcoholism and anger has just been ruining his life. Not only that, the essentially demons or ghosts from the Overlook Hotel, once they left, and I mean, by saying certain things, I guess I am spoiling The Shining. The movie came out in 1980, people. Come on, do your research, get on your Googles, and you can find a million breakdowns of The Shining. So when they escape the house, he and his mother escape the Overlook Hotel, he basically is still haunted by those ghosts because they were feeding off of him and his shine, a.k.a. his psychic abilities, while they were in the Overlook Hotel. When they left, those ghosts are still hungry. They're still wanting to feed off of him, and so he still sees visions of them. Definitely one of the more prevalent ones that we see is the woman in room 237. She is still super creepy, still gross, just like when I saw the original Shining as a kid, and it traumatized me when this grotesque woman comes out of the bath and she is naked and has boils and is just disgusting. Yeah, she is back. She is 100% back in this and plays a crucial role in this as well in multiple different ways. So as we pick up with Dan Torrance now in his adult life, we see him battling these demons, both, I guess you can call them physical manifestations in the ghosts themselves, but also his alcoholism, also his anger, which he recognizes completely comes from his father. Like the only way to kind of tone down those voices, both of his dad and those experiences that he had at the Overlook, is to drown it in alcohol. That struggle that Ewan McGregor portrays as Dan Torrance is very real to the point where this is one of those tough things where I think anybody who has either in their family or gone through it personally, some substance abuse issues, be it alcohol or anything else, there are parts of this movie that are very hard to watch. There's one scene in particular where we see Dan just really struggling with a bottle and it is just so raw and so real and you just want him to make the right choice even though you can see how much pain he is in and it just that that one scene in particular was just tremendous because of Ewan McGregor and his performance to really sell what it is like to struggle with that type of substance abuse what a rookie move just now. My phone just went off in the middle of the studio with the Candy Crush update right in the middle of my discussion of Dr. Sleep. Sheesh. Uh, anyway, so through that alcoholism, we see basically how he is 
coping and how it basically is not working because yeah, it might silence those voices for a little bit, but everything else that it is doing to his life is so destructive. So through that, we find him as he goes towards, you know, another sleepy small town and meets Billy, uh, who is played amazingly by Cliff Curtis. I love Cliff Curtis in everything he does. And through Billy, he starts going to AA meetings and starts to kind of balance out those parts of his life. While this is going on, where he finally is starting to be at peace with himself for the first time, I mean, since he was a very young child, because unfortunately, from the events of the first movie, The Shining, his life got pretty messed up real early. But now we see him in this small town working. He, you know, is still going to the AA meetings. But turns out, of course, he cannot have a, not even happy ending, a happy life all the time because he finds out through his, through this uh, found connection with a young girl named Abra, who also has the ability to shine, is also psychic, and is extremely powerful. She reaches out to him because she witnesses, through psychic visions, this group of people killing and torturing, torturing and killing young children to basically steal their... I mean, he hates to call it magic in the film, but to take their their essence, their power, their shine from them. So this group is going around basically pinging kids who can shine on a weird sort of radar from one of their leaders, Crow Daddy. So as soon as they, they latch on to the signal from a child who has a shine, they go to them, they torture them, and through that process... It feeds them. It feeds their powers and their ability to shine and keeps them pretty much immortal because we find out as the film goes on just how old some of these, some of the people in this group are. That group is called the True Knot and there were multiple times where characters would say that in the movie and I could not tell exactly what they were saying, like what the name of the group was. I also have not read Dr. Sleep. That could be part of it, or I did not really know what I was looking for with that. So as Abra witnesses, psychically witnesses this torture and murder, that unfortunately gets her put right on the radar of the true knot. The leader of the true knot, or kind of, I would say the main antagonist, because she is pretty much the leader, even though there are people who are older than her in the group who have been leading it for longer, but she is the main antagonist. That is Rebecca Ferguson as Rose the Hat. Rebecca Ferguson has this amazing quality, very similar in my mind to Tilda Swinton, where there is this just magnetic appearance of her face on screen. Something about it, and I'm not sure really what it is, if it is bone structure, if it is the way that they do their eye makeup or something about it, but when Rebecca Ferguson or Atilda Swinton is on screen, you cannot help but be completely drawn in to what they are doing. That 
And, I mean, of course, both of them are very good actresses, and that always helps. So we get Rebecca Ferguson, who she, just like with, you know, radio signals or cell phone towers, if you pick up on something, sometimes that other end can pick up on your signal as well. That truly kicks off this, I mean, it kind of turns into a road trip film at different points in the movie where we see Abra, who the young woman who plays Abra, uh, Kaylee or Kylie Curran, she is incredible. This is only her second movie. And the first one she did, I looked at the trailer, did not see her anywhere in it. She was billed like 10th or 11th. So I'm not sure how much of a role she actually had in that. This being her first film, like big feature film, she crushes it. She is so good in this. And she plays so well off of Ewan McGregor, who has had decades of experience. They work really well off of each other. Kylie shows determination. She shows sadness, incredible sadness at various parts of the movie, but also just this resiliency and determination that also has a hint of darkness. When you talk about these powers that the people in these films have, it very easily can tip the scales of, okay, I have the ability to get in somebody's head. I can either do good things with that, which is how we see Ewan McGregor as Dan Torrance. We see him in this small town working at basically a hospice center where he earns the nickname Dr. Sleep because he helps people as they transition from this life to the next. And so as he is doing that, he sits with them. He essentially communicates with them in their head, being like, calm down. This is the way things go. This is natural. And helps them ease into that eternal sleep. That same power can really mess with people if you have malicious intent. So with Kylie as Abra, we see those moments. And she does not shy away from showing how powerful she is and showing what she is capable of, even if she is still learning how to use these, even if she is still trying to figure out who she is. She is only 13 years old in the movie. And the actress is only 13. So during those formative years, and you are an incredibly powerful psychic, it really could mess with you. So her transition in this film and her storyline were really, really well done. I will say the beginning of this movie, like the first act, takes a little bit of getting used to. The pacing is a little bit odd. We get flashbacks of a woman who looks very, very much like Shelley Duvall. They do a great job with that. I was actually really impressed that they did not really use any stock footage from The Shining. They did recreations, and they were phenomenal recreations. So they get an actress who looks like Shelley Duvall. We get a couple scenes with an actor who might look like Jack Nicholson. We get a young boy as Danny Torrance. All of those are done really well. But that first act, you kind of just got to work your way through it. Because once this really gets going in the second act, leading into the finale... I mean, it is on cruise control in the best way, where it is, maybe not cruise control, I would say it is cruise control in the beginning, 
to kind of set the stage, get everybody accustomed to it, have those tangential flashbacks and connections to The Shining. Then it kind of ramps up. And the finale to this movie, like the last 15 minutes, is really, really good. And there's enough there's enough meat on the bones from The Shining where those people who really like The Shining and remember The Shining will be satisfied. But even if you have not seen The Shining, even though I have multiple times, I do believe that this has enough of its own story to just see this one. There might be a couple things where if somebody was truly going into this blind, not knowing anything about The Shining, there might be a couple things they might wonder about. There are a couple scenes in particular that if you know The Shining, you understand that payoff. But this is a solid film that can stand on its own, and it is heightened by the fact that it has those touch points of the original. So that was, I was really impressed with this. And again, this is something that none of us really knew what to expect. I mean, there are a lot of people who love Dr. Sleep, the book, more so than they love The Shining. So it had some of that momentum, but that also comes with a lot of pressure to get it right. So it was risky. It was definitely risky, but I, I do believe that not only does this stand on its own, this is a solid sequel to a legendary classic film in The Shining from 1980. Speaking of 1980, there are a couple Easter eggs, just like Stephen King likes to do in almost all of his works, other than, of course, being a writer in a small town like he does in everything. In this one, the young girl's address, her home address, is 1980, same year that The Shining came out. When we go to the small town where Dan Torrance is working with Cliff Curtis and kind of going through stuff, they continually go past a street named Elm Street. Little nod, clever, and the touch points to The Shining in particular. There's a musical score when they're driving on a certain mountain road that is pretty much, you know, almost frame by frame, beat for beat from The Shining. But it was done in, in a reverent, reverential matter as opposed to kind of a heavy-handed, ham-fisted matter. Like, this was done out of respect and admiration. And you could feel that. Like, I could really feel that all of those little things they were doing were not just throwaway connections. Like, they, they mattered, and they were handled with a deft hand. And so definitely attribute that to Mike Flanagan. He knows what he is doing when it comes to these psychological horror films, and especially when I am not the biggest fan of super bloody body horror type of things. I will watch them on occasion. I will like them on occasion. But it is not my jam. I would have much rather psychological horror. This has a very... Uh, I guess well-defined line that it rides between those two because we definitely get some body horror elements in this multiple times. But predominantly, it is the performances, the score, the lighting, the transitions that really set the stage and make you scared and make you feel uneasy. That is great filmmaking. So... I think those are pretty much all of my my notes with this. I mean, it was just, it was taut, it was tense, and and risky. 
and it, it definitely paid off. So if this is your first time listening to the About to Review podcast, and you do not know what the rating system is, well, let me tell you. There are only three choices. The three choices are good, bad, or ugly. No stars, no letter grades. A good film is something you would recommend to a friend. A bad film is something you do not immediately care for. It was just kind of there. Ugly, avoid at all costs. My official rating for Dr. Sleep, starring Ewan McGregor, Cliff Curtis, an amazing performance by Rebecca Ferguson and Kylie Curran, gets a good. This movie really kind of knocked my socks off. I was I was impressed with this movie. Again, pretty much from the beginning to the end, even though the beginning took a little bit to get going. But yeah, this is a very solid movie. If you are a Stephen King fan, highly recommend this. If you read the book, I want I want to hear from people who read the book after they have seen the movie so they can kind of tell me what they think about it since I do not have that type of connection with it. So I encourage you to do that. You can hit me up on social media at About to Review or send me an email about to review at gmail.com. And we can just kind of talk about that. I, I would be very interested to hear your thoughts. So that wraps it up for Dr. Sleep. Uh, I will put in some sort of obviously time code, but also sound effect uh, after this bit to then I will come back after the winners have been announced for the Seattle 48 hour horror film project and talk about those uh, real quick. Uh, there are going to be some live panels that I will be presenting on uh, here very soon on Thursday, November 7th at the Seattle General Assembly. I will be part of a podcast panel with a few other local content producers just talking about podcasting and content is king and working on your content, developing your voice. And then the week after that, on Sunday, November 17th at the Seattle Film Summit, uh, I am hosting a panel that I put together called Diversity in Film Criticism with fellow members of the Seattle Film Critics Society, really talking about how film criticism can shape the way that we look at these diverse representations and minority communities being shown on larger platforms than they have before. So those are going to be two in-person, live, in-your-face panels. And then this upcoming weekend, I will be covering the Vancouver Asian Film Festival in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. I love going up there. Film community up there is incredibly welcoming. And yeah, this will be my third time up there this year covering a film festival. So look forward to those. Uh, right now, there will be a little bit of a pause and then well, for you, it will be seconds, mere seconds, until I go into my favorites from the Seattle 48-hour horror, horror film project. 